Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to have back on the show Lisa Lee, who covers all things credit for Bloomberg News in London. How are you, Lisa? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's actually a very warm day in London, very unusual. Great. Well, very excited to get your take on the markets. Thanks very much for joining us. We're also delighted to see Jeroen Julius, a credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence in London. We'll be coming back to Jeroen a bit later to talk about banks and 81s and the aftermath of the Credit Suisse collapse. So do stay with us. But first, Lisa Lee with Bloomberg News, you're our global guru on CLOs, which we've talked about quite a lot on this show. But let's start with an easy one. What is a CLO? How do they work? And why do we care? So CLOs buy up leverage loans. What are leverage loans, first of all, you ask? Those are debt loans of junk-rated companies, so those on the edge of bankruptcy, but nonetheless still can produce very good yield and usually back um, PEs, buyouts, and companies like as wide-ranging as American Airlines to Burger Kings. Um, and CLOs are the biggest buyers, and they buy them to turn them into bonds that they sell on to other investors. Okay, so issuance of CLOs um, hasn't been that active this year, um, but we have been kind of hearing about a revival potentially this month. Has that started yet? Are you seeing a big boom in, in CLO issuance right now? I think what we're seeing is a, lot, a boom on CLO aspirations. So there's a lot of managers who are hoping to do CLOs because as you said, there's, issuance has been very weak. You look now, we're in September. You've got really three and a half months to get deals done. And so people are hoping maybe we can get one deal done, two deals done before the end of the year and make something of this year. So it's not a total sort of a, a really bad week year. The problem is everyone has the same thought. Everyone wants to do a deal right now. And the problem that's been riddling them all year long has not gone away, which is that they're just not as enough leveraged loans to turn into bonds. And what is that has done is pushed leveraged loan prices higher, too high for them to do a deal that pleases every investor in their um, capital stack. And as a CLO, you have to please every investor or you're not going to really have a popular, economic, robust CLO. Interesting. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot more hedge funds getting into CLOs. Who's jumping in and why are they getting in now? So hedge funds are getting in because, you know, one thing you've noticed is CLO hedge funds. It's a great business. You can make so much money. It's 2 and 20. 
And so it is, there's a lot of volatility in hedge funds. You make tons of money, but you can also lose a lot of money. CLOs, if, as a manager, as a manager of CLOs, which is versus a, an investor who buys the bond, but one who buys the loans, packages them up, and then sells them, it's a very steady fee business. And if you're a hedge fund already that has a lot of credit focus, for instance, Arini is a hedge fund by this very famous um, former Credit Suisse corporate tr trader. He knows corporate debt. And so that's his hedge fund. And so to move into CLO is a very easy ancillary business. And it provides a steadiness that perhaps CLO, I mean, hedge funds don't have. And and I think why now? There's always, people are always thinking, like there's always a good time for a steady business. And you're thinking about this for a long-term um, platform, not just for this moment. And so we're seeing a bunch of them, not just Arini, but Surround, Carvel, a number of hedge funds are trying to get in. And remember, remember, there's already a number of hedge funds who have plat um, CLO platforms, like and King Street and Anchorage. Sorry, that fund you mentioned is Irene? Arini's. He is, um, Arini's the word for parrot, and he's a big fan of parrots. Great. Okay. And so these hedge funds that are coming in new to the asset class, are they doing big deals or just kind of testing the waters right now? I think what they're going to do is just get their first deal done. Usually, if you want to start a CLO business, regardless of whether you're a hedge fund or an asset manager, you have to hire a very well known, well-regarded CLO manager that's experienced for the market to trust you. So they've all done that. They've all hired a CLO manager, and now they're meeting, many of them are meeting with investors, trying to pitch how they're different and trying to see if they'll be interested in their deals. I've got to ask, and I know we've talked about this before, but hedge funds, CLOs, I mean, it all sounds like a, like a risky business to me. Why should we not worry about this? Well, I don't think we shouldn't not worry about this. I mean, there are systemic risks involved with these kind of, uh, of securitized products. And the Bank of England and the Treasury and the IMF have warned that corporate debt could be an area of systemic risk. So we should worry. At the moment, um, we're seeing fairly low default rates. But one area of real concern is low default rates are fairly low. But we don't know whether they will stay that way. And the defaults are of the leverage loan that they repackage. And what one thing that um, I've been reporting on is how low recovery levels are. So defaults are when a like when a company goes perhaps goes bankrupt. Um, recovery is how much money investors lenders get back when something goes bad. So it's so for a investor, it's not just default rate bankruptcy numbers. It's also times that with how much money they get back. And the recovery levers have been astonishingly low, historically low. So usually, CLOs got 70, 80 cents back after a company went bankrupt. Now they're looking at more like 25 cents. So that is really changing how they have to think about their investment. At the moment, I don't think they're pricing this in, but people are getting more and more concerned. So one thing you've seen in Europe is some C brigade capital management retool their exist two of their existing CLOs so they can better fight off what some people have been calling lender-on-lender -lender violence or creditor-on-creditor -creditor violence, where maybe an aggressive hedge fund comes in, puts in new money, and like and um, pushes other investors, other lenders down the priority line. And because of this kind of maneuver, some, some bankruptcies have produced zero for, for first lien lenders. So you raise a lot of issues there, Lisa. I mean, I've got to yes. start trying to unpack some of them. But um, you're talking about hedge funds 
getting into CLOs. Um, at the same time, um, some of the risky maneuvers that they're they're doing um, are um, what we have called creditor on creditor yes. violence. Um, some CLOs in response are trying to um, rework their um, their rules to make it tougher to to pull those things off. Um, it all just sounds like a, a total a total mess. I mean, and then, and then at the same time, because of these aggressive strategies, the recoveries uh, when you go through a default are much lower for for investors. I mean, what what's the takeaway here? I mean, is, is, is this market just becoming a, a, a total scrap? And I mean, is it, is it getting more risky as a result? Oh, I want to say it's probably a total scrap. I think there's a lot of things to worry about and things to watch for. As of as of now, rec- defaults are still low. As of now, recoveries are low, but they could go higher. As of now, but it also sort of depends on the broader economy, if how interest rates go, where if we have a recession or not. If interest rate, if inflation picks up again, or if the Fed doesn't manage a soft landing and we go into a recession, then I think that this becomes more and more of a worry. Because hedge funds, not the ones, even the ones who have have CLO shops, have raised a lot of money for distressed situations, and they have pools of capital ready to to do these um, aggressive tactics, and they could really leave the the CLO and leverage loan market in, in a lot of damage. But let's get back to where you started with the hedge funds getting in. I mean, they're getting into this business because it is a stable fee generating yes. business. Um, at the same time, we're saying that it's it's under a lot of um, pressure and it's getting more volatile. I mean, how do we square that circle? Because um, the manager is not up for the loss. So remember I told you the manager sells the bonds. The people who get hurt are the bonds, the people who bought the bonds, not the managers who sold the bonds. So getting into the steady fee business, you've hopefully, hopefully put off the risk to somebody else. Now, the problem oftentimes with any kind of financial crisis is that you think you've sold off the risk, you haven't. But in this situation, it really does seem like they've sold off the risk, but it doesn't mean that that risk goes somewhere. It's never, it never disappears. I think that's the kernel of truth in finance is you can move away risk, but you can't dis- make risk disappear. So it's just in other people's pockets that this, um, this problem exists. And it may take a while for that problem to show up. Yes. Okay. So let's just go back to the, um, the rule changes that we're talking about um, in some of these CLOs to try and fend off these attacks by aggressive hedge funds. Will these amendments become an industry standard, do we think? Um, in the U.S., they become, they're more standard than in Europe, but I've talked to managers and lawyers, and they definitely think that this will pick up, that there's great interest in doing them. It doesn't take that much effort. They've like sort of innovated them to the point that it doesn't cost too much to do, and there's only benefit to have it, and there isn't much of a downside to, to not having them. So I do think it's going to become more of an industry norm, but we'll see. Sometimes people can get really complacent. And so let's just go back to the original point about CLOs, you know, that they are basically repackaging loans to, to pretty, um, you know, stable, you know, large companies that are household names. Um, it, does that make them more or less risky? And, and what, what's their performance been over time? I mean, is, is this something like the CDOs that are really very dangerous or, or is it, has it been a long-term performer? For, for the longest time, CLOs were one of the 
areas in the securitization market that perf performed fairly well during the financial crisis, which is the reason why they came back post-crisis. So CDLs never came back, CBLs never came back in the way they were. So they did come back, they did perform well, but past is not prologue to the future. And the market's changed a great deal, so it's not to say that that can't cause issues in the future, but history has shown them to be pretty sturdy, and they've worked to become more sturdy, but it's hard to know given all the all the, the changed market and the way hedge funds be, behave now and how restructurings are going. A lot of it will depend on how bad a recession there is and how bad and how high inflation is and how high interest rates are. So on that point, and before we talk to Jeroen Julius at Bloomberg Intelligence about the banks, um, what else is on your radar? I mean, as you say, the economy in Europe particularly is, you know, doesn't look great. Um, should we be worried about risk assets here? You've also been writing a lot about private credit. Is, you know, deal, bigger and bigger deals, more and more fundraising. Is it, is it all rosy over there as well? No, I think there's, um, well, it depends on who you're talking to. The private credit managers having a great time raising money. And we, since we started with CLOs, they're looking a little worried because private credit is taking away a lot of the, um, the loans that they use to repackage. So they're worried there and, and a big topic right now is private credit CLOs. So should we more move more to private credit CLOs? Should we securitize this private credit? In the US it's already happening and it's picking up and it's booming. It's actually the one area of the CLO market that's booming. And Europeans managers were wondering whether they can get into the action as well. So in one so there's there are worries about how much private credit is taking away from the leveraged loan market as as high yield and leveraged loan and private credit sort of converges. And at the same time people are all thinking about okay, then what's the opportunity next? What well, how can I still make money? So we really will be looking very closely at your coverage to kind of figure out what's going on, why it's happening, and, and what are the risks. Um, it's, a, it's a really fascinating one to watch. Great stuff. Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, as always. Read all of Lisa's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Moving on to another big topic, as I mentioned earlier, we are very fortunate to have with us Jeroen Julius, who covers credit for Bloomberg Intelligence, based in London and is focused on the banks. How's it going over there, Jeroen? All good. Thank you very much, uh, James, and uh, thank you for having me um, on, uh, on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. And last time we spoke, Credit Suisse, which was deemed at the time to be a global, systemically important bank, collapsed. That was in March. How has that impacted the European banking sector? What was the fallout there? Um, well, I think it's, uh, it may have done some permanent damage uh, to Switzerland's uh, reputation of calmness and uh, predictability. Uh, but the, the impact on the wider uh, European banking market and uh, more specifically on the 81 market, I think is more nuanced. Uh, I think most 81 investors have concluded that there is no read across between Switzerland and some of the other uh, jurisdictions. Um, EU and uh, UK regulators, they came out quite strongly in back in March in support of um, respecting the, the claims hierarchy in case of a bank failure. Uh, and I, I think most 81 investors have also concluded that there's no read across between Credit Suisse and other European banks. Um, if you look at um, banks' credit fundamentals, you know these have remained quite uh, quite resilient, uh, judging uh, from their second quarter results. 
Okay, so let me stop you there. Um, you mentioned AT1s, which stands for additional tier one. Um, it's a type of risky bank debt. But before we get into the sort of details of what's going on there, can I ask you just to please describe what those are, how they work um, for those that aren't aware? Yes, yeah, so these are the most junior type of instruments that uh, banks can issue, uh, mostly in Europe, but also in a lot of other jurisdictions outside of the United States. Um, and they sit just above uh, common equity and they share with common equity a number of characteristics. They are a perpetual instruments, uh, so they do not have a fixed maturity date. Uh, they do have uh, an issue a call date um, and if not called subsequent issue a call dates, but no fixed maturity date. Uh, that's the first characteristic. Um, in addition to that, uh, they uh, have um, discretionary coupon uh, cancellation uh, language. So that means that the issuer can decide to issue a, a coupon uh, whenever it wants to do so. Um, and then lastly, uh, embedded in the uh, 81 structure is um, a principal loss um, mechanism and that means that if a certain capital trigger is hit, um, that the um, the par value of those instruments will either be uh, written down uh, temporarily, uh, or as was the case with the the, the Credit Suisse eighty uh, ones permanently, uh, or they are uh, they are converted into a common equity. So the eighty one bonds, they're also known as contingent convertibles. They help banks comply with capital requirements as well, and they were created after the financial crisis as a way to impose losses on creditors without using taxpayer money, right? And that's how they kind of, that's the history. That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so as you mentioned, in the Credit Suisse collapse that we saw earlier this year, the um, 81 bonds were fully written down, which was, I think, a bit of a shock to some people, um, and cancelled by the Swiss authorities. How did this affect the AT1 market, was there permanent damage? Um, well, most of the AT1 price declines that we saw back in March uh, have now been uh, reversed. Uh, having said that, over the past few months, uh, AT1s have been more or less uh, range-bound uh, at around 10% yield to worst uh, for euro and dollar-denominated uh, bonds. So 81 yields, they've, they've basically reset to uh, to a higher level if you compare it with where we were back in January, early February. Uh, this has mostly been due uh, to, uh, to higher rates rather than higher spreads. Um, Trading volumes in 81s, they have uh, come down from the highs that we saw back in March. Um, some of this is probably due to the absence of 81 issuance between March and uh, June. Uh, some of it may also be due to uh, seasonality over the quieter summer months. Uh, but it may also be the case that some investors have decided to no longer be involved in the 81 space, given their volatility and the risk of impromptu uh, rule changes uh, by governments, as we saw in Switzerland. And um, that may have hurt uh, demand technicals and liquidity and may also uh, have made 81 prices uh, potentially more uh, volatile. But if you compare current trading um, levels uh, with previous years, 81 trading volumes uh, actually don't look all that bad. 
So not really a huge impact then. I mean, the disappearance of this massive institution, Credit Suisse, other than a kind of a slap to the, the Swiss reputation for, for you know, safe hands and, uh, you know, solid banking, there, there hasn't really been that much um, long-term impact on, on, on the market? Um, well, you know, maybe it's too soon to, uh, to say, but, um, you know, I started that by saying that the read across between Switzerland and other ju other jurisdictions uh, is is limited. The read across between Credit Suisse and other European banks uh, is also limited. Uh, valuations have recovered. Trading volumes are down, but not uh, massively so. So. You know, by the look of things, things have uh, normalized uh, fairly quickly. But look, a precedent has been set. And um, I think uh, some investors may have uh, decided that uh, you know, this is just too wild a ride and uh, no longer want to be involved in it. But if you bought some of that stuff during the height of the panic earlier this year, you would have made a lot of money. Are there still opportunities out there? Are there still cheap 81 bonds? Um, there are a few uh, smaller uh, issues, um, you know, issued by uh, some smaller, uh, more marginal banks that are trading at very wide levels. It is true. Um, and then some of the Swiss bank 81s, I would say away from UBS, uh, are also still trading at fairly wide levels. So I do think that there is a bit of a Swiss discount being applied. Uh, to some of those, but uh, some of those instruments they are uh, denominated in Swiss francs rather than in euros uh, or dollars. So um, um, away from that, yeah, I, th I think the large majority of the of the eighty one space has 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 recovered quite uh, quite uh, nicely. Interesting. So let's talk about primary market issuance, you know, new debt sales um, in in the US. The beginning of September, we kicked off with the busiest day in three years for, for primary um, high-grade bond issuance. I mean, that obviously includes debt of all types, but, but has the AT1 market also rebounded? Yeah, so the, the, the primary market in AT1s was uh, shut between March and to June, but has now uh, reopened. So we've seen, uh, I think, seven banks issue, mostly in euros. Uh, and all the newly issued AT1s, they are trading around par uh, or a little above it. So. Perhaps that could also be taken as an indication that the the the, the dust uh, has uh, settled, that you know investor nerves have steadied, and eighty one issuers have also become uh, a bit more uh, confident. So let's talk about the calls, Jeroen. Um, the market has, um, according to Bloomberg News, there's about eighty four billion in notes that have calls over the next two years. Um, typically, banks. Um, would call that debt and replace it with new debt. So that's uh, you know an issuance um, you know, driver. Um, but but you've also noted non-call risk. Can you talk a bit about the the call and the non-call risk and how that works? Yeah. So um, until recently, there's always been an expectation in Europe that uh, 81 bonds would get called at the first call date. Uh, back in 2020, we we saw the first. Um, uh, cases of uh, bonds not getting called at their first call date. Santander was the first one, but then uh, decided to call later on. And then you had Deutsche Bank and Lloyds. Um, since then, there have been a few others. In the fourth quarter of last year, you had Raiffeisen and, uh, and Sabadell, but then Sabadell did call 
later on. So there have been a few cases, a handful of cases uh, going into this year. Um, Non-core risk has gone up uh, because of the economics. They've changed. Um, you know, um, back-end coupon reset indices, they have uh, moved higher uh, in line with uh, uh, higher rates. And um, as, as a result of that, you now have to be a bit more careful uh, about this risk. You can no longer assume that every single 81 bond will get called. Um, the first thing you have to look at is the starting capital position of an issuer. Um, if a bank is well capitalized, you know, then they have got discretion to do as they please. Um, if that is not the case, then a bank will need to issue a, a replacement bond. Um, and if it does so, then um, you have to look at the core economics. So in other words, the replacement bond at what level uh, was it issued? Was it uh, at you know, the same level, cheaper or more expensive? If the new bond was issued uh, at a, um, a more expensive level, then there is a risk that the regulator will say, well, listen, you, are, you should not call the, uh, the bond coming up for call. Um, so the ECB has been a bit ambivalent uh, on this topic. Um, they have allowed some non-economic calls um, but uh, very recently we saw Santander not calling its five and a quarter euro bond. That bond is, is coming up for call actually at the end of this month, at the end of September, but uh, it, the, the, the call notice period has now expired and that in effect means that it will not get called. Um, Santander had not issued replacement uh, bonds and uh, you know, because of its capital position uh, it meant that it was not going to call uh, was widely expected, so that, you know, it wasn't a huge surprise. But it does underscore the fact that this is uh, th this is a risk that investors need to uh, consider carefully. And even more uncertainty, which is maybe contribut contributing to the um, volatility and the liquidity issues that you mentioned earlier. Mm, that's right. Yes. So let's look ahead, uh, Jeroen, um, to the rest of the year and maybe into next year. What's what's next for the AT1 sector? What have you got your eye on? So. Um, there's only one bond uh, left for call this year. That's the Société Générale uh, dollar seven and seven eighths uh, callable in December. Uh, this particular bond will uh, likely get called as it uh, contains some legacy language. The bond was issued under UK law, uh, which is a bit of an issue after after Brexit. Um, looking into next year, there will be 33 uh, 81s uh, coming up for first call across euro dollar and uh, and sterling uh, for an equivalent of 33 billion dollars uh, uh, um, and that is that, that's an increase on, on previous years so you know next year is uh, shaping up to be uh, quite quite a big uh, big year for for calls and uh, uh, you know, probably also for issuance and the year beyond 2025 is even larger um, now over the past week, uh, we've seen two banks uh, doing a tender offer for one of their existing 81s with a first call date next year and simultaneously uh, issue a new 81 with a tender offer being contingent on the successful issue of the new bond. Um, by the way, the, the two banks uh, are uh, Intesa in Italy and uh, Erste Group Bank uh, in Austria. Um, so that's that's a new way of uh, replacing existing 81 bonds coming up for call, uh, which seems to be more efficient and we think may well be uh, adopted uh, more broadly. 
And more broadly in the sector, Jeroen, um, what else should we be looking for in European financials? Um, you know, when, when there was that big crisis with Credit Suisse, some of the other banks were kind of wobbling. Deutsche Bank was uh, under a lot of stress. Are there other banks that we should be worried about? Are we expecting another replay of, of Credit Suisse? Well, uh, you can never exclude um, that sort of stress scenario playing out. But uh, what we do is every quarter we we uh, have a close look at the um, uh, at the balance sheet, at the results of, uh, of all the banks under our coverage, and um, you know in the second quarter, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, banks by and large um, in Europe um, stayed pretty resilient in terms of their capital buffers, in terms of their liquidity buffers in terms of their asset quality and in terms of their profitability. Um, but, you know, within that uh, sector, the, the, there is a, um, uh, you know, quite a, quite a variation between uh, top and bottom uh, names. Um, nothing screams as loudly uh, as, uh, as Credit Suisse did, um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, deteriorating credit fundamentals. Uh, but you know th there are some uh, some names that do not have the same capital buffers as uh, as, as their peers, um, and equally equally liquidity and asset quality. You know they do not all sc screen um, uh, the same. So there is a degree of variation in that sector. Absolutely. So certainly one we'll be looking at very closely as as the European uh, you know economies come under more strain and. Um, you know, global economic outlook uh, is, is more tricky, but, but this is one we've got to watch. So thank you very much, Jeroen Julius of Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you very much. And do read all of his great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal, and uh, we hope to see you back on the show soon. Likewise. Thank you. And thanks again to Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of her great credit scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.